Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In 1347, the population of England was something on the order of 5.5 million. After the first wave of the Black Death had crashed upon the island's shores and then receded, that population had been reduced to 2.8 million. Immense tragedy lies in that devastating loss and immense consequences as well. But the plague was not done with England. It would return in 1361, 1369, and 1375 with both further human and therefore economic cost. And the climate also made war against the English, with a cold period that led to crop loss and famine. Investigating the consequences of the Black Death has been one of the major areas of research for historians of medieval England since nearly the creation of modern historical study. Now Professor Mark Bailey offers us a new interpretation of those consequences in a deeply researched and thought-through study after the Black Death, Economy, Society, and the Law in 14th Century England. Mark Bailey is Professor of Late Medieval History at the University of East Anglia. Mark Bailey, welcome to Historically Thinking. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um, what's uh, what's the origin of this book? Um, it, the, the the sort of the Nelson's column in the living room is that uh, this is published. Your, your timing is impeccable. Um, I saw the OUP catalog and said, after the black death, it's 2020. And I say, yeah, that's, I want to talk to that guy. But of course, this was the James Ford lectures in 2019 when you couldn't possibly have imagined what was just about to happen. Um, so I'm curious about, but it's also as you make some autobiographical remarks, which indicate that, uh, you've been thinking about, you know, and, and you look at the, the notes, you've been collecting notes for this book, your entire professional life. Um, so could you describe the origins of the study, um, both within, um, you know, in the more recent past, but also in sort of the Mark Bailey past? Certainly. An old sage in Cambridge years ago told me that the, the key to a successful academic career was always be on the verge of publishing your magnum opus. Uh, And secondly, um, be lucky, not intelligent. And, and I, I failed on the former, but I've succeeded on, on, on the latter. I'm just serendipity on, on the timing. Well, I've, I've been working on the Black Death for over 30 years, had an opportunity to bring the thoughts together for the Oxford Lecture Series, um, and, um, and, and then the pandemic broke. It, it, it was um, terrible timing, great good fortune. Um, so th- 30 years ago, I've been teaching uh, the, the Black Death and was teaching the conventional narrative where, where essentially plague um, was downplayed. And that, that was part of the, the broad intellectual paradigm at the time. Um, and the reason essentially is that external factors, exogenous factors such as climate and plague were regarded as secondary forces in developing, uh, explaining the development of human societies. It, it's, it's social relations, population, warfare that, that explains how societies d- develop. And then in the, in the 1990s and the early noughties, the 
the sort of intellectual paradigm changed with our own societal anxieties about climate change. And increasingly, historians were prepared to admit the impact and influence of ostensibly random external factors such as climate and disease in explaining significant turning points in in human history. So I I began to change my thinking around that and wanted to to upgrade plague uh, and disease, if if you like. Um, Simultaneously, there's been a, a huge surge in new interdisciplinary research into the genetics of, of, of plague, uh, new methodologies um, in, in macroeconomics that, that just provided an opportunity to, to go back to um, the, the original assumptions, uh, draw upon lots of local research that had been undertaken in the last 30 years and say, what are the implications of, of all of this for how we have traditionally regarded plague? And uh, the result was the book. So you have some interesting uh, thoughts about why people might have rejected these sort of environmental consequences, particularly the middle of the 20th century. Um, I, I, I thought when I was reading this is, is that having read more early medieval chronicles than I probably should have, that um, it's, it's very interesting uh, in a way that there's a, there's a, and I realize I did this too, there's a failure to listen to the sources because certainly the chroniclers are aware of the impact of climate and disease and bad crops. Uh, tribute it to God, the devil, whatever. They're certainly aware of the impacts, but sometimes we didn't, didn't listen to them too well. Just sort of ignored that. Uh, but you, you you suggest that the sort of people, the, the scholars in the middle of the 20th century had a different sort of reason for, for, for ignoring that. Um, but partly, I, I think that the general point you made is a really good one. The, the, the early historians in the uh, early historians, early 20th century historians are setting the agendas, asking the questions, and they're painting vast strokes across an empty canvas. And my, my, my sense is, in terms of the historiography, historians in the mid to late 20th century are, are largely responding to those research agendas, those questions, mm-hmm. and they're, they're almost filling in the gaps. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes there's, there's, a, there's a blindness, um, which is to, to what's in front of you in the sources. So you know, the, 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 the established narrative is that the Black Death had hardly any impact. Well, well actually... If you go to the original sources and to some of the secondary work of, of historians who stated that um, in, in in the mid to late twentieth century, they're providing a lot of evidence that climate is quite significant. There's, there's a significant amount of disruption in the aftermath of the Black Death, but it's it's waiting is is largely downplayed or it's discounted because the, the it's almost like pathway dependency you're, mm-hmm. you're, 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 you're answering a set of questions in a particular way and you're looking to populate it and maybe just just revise it yeah. but and that's exactly what i did yeah and then suddenly i thought hang on a minute i've been getting this i've been getting this seriously wrong it just doesn't fit together and it's partly methodological advances it's more more empirical studies more detailed studies are showing complexity and then suddenly i, I just thought it's time to take stock of all of this and just re- revisit what does the complexity tell us about how we might have misunderstood or made certain um, dubious assumptions about about plague, about the setup of society, and, and start to go back to the chroniclers, go back to the original sources, and as you put it, listen. 
Mm-hmm. It's um, I love that pathway dependency. It's really hard to get through your doctoral thesis without pathway dependency. There, there, <laughs> there are very few of us who have the chutzpah, the or just let's call it arrogance, um, to and brilliance to ignore that and then write this absolutely you know sort of interesting doctoral thesis that breaks new ground. Most of us have to get through by following some trodden historiographical path. Um, you attribute now that you say you have, uh, I'm, I'm switching, you said you were immature You were immature and uh, timid in 1981. Now you've developed a sufficient maturity and boldness that we're supposed to develop as we as we age and uh, and become, you know, wiser and, and you know, I don't know, angrier as, as scholars or something like that. Yeah, and, and um, the, 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 that statement was heavily caveated by uh, a, a conviction that, that th- this isn't the answer. Um, what, what I've written, how I've tried to reinterpret, um, is not the definitive path, new pathway. Um, it, it just strikes me that, that it's time to raise a number of, of doubts and, and articulate and evidence some of the discomforting uh, ways in which the traditional explanations simply don't explain and don't fit what's in front of us. So let, let's ask some new questions. Let's look at other ways. Let's um let's do a brief survey of the Black Death in England. Uh, a factitious, you know, lightly light. Let's keep the interpretation very light. Let's keep as much to the sort of prominent. The I, I've given the, I mean, the staggering five point five to two point eight million drop. What else can we say about the Black Death as as we know it in very generic terms? Yeah, d- 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 briefly. Um, in the early fourteenth century, Europe is 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 heavily overpopulated. Um, there's been three, four, five centuries of, of growth. It's, it's a high water mark, um, if you like, in social, economic, cultural um, arenas. But there's increasing stress, social, economic, demographic, and environmental uh, in the early 14th century. It's well documented across Europe. Along comes the Black Death in the middle of the century. Um, it, it, it kills 50% of the population, as you said. Um, it, it strikes indiscriminately. Um, it uh, kills across the vast majority of the continent. There are hardly any areas at miss. Um, it, it moves quickly. And, and in fact, it, it kills so fast, moves so quickly, and is so devastating, it behaves very differently to how plague behaves today. So for 20 years, historians debated whether it was plague. But with development in genetics, we now know that it, it is plague. The Black Death was Yersinia pestis, but behaving very differently to the way it behaves today. Have we solved the pneumonic versus bubonic argument that was going on 20 years ago that I can recall? I mean, people, people really, people, people fought hard over that one. I mean, teeth and, and claw, nail. It, 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 it was any undergraduate writing uh, uh, on the Black Death for the last 20 years would have had the question, what was the Black Death? Yeah. And, and it's just disappeared since 2010 because we know the answer to that. And, and instead of arguing now about rats and fleas uh, and instead of arguing about bubonic and pneumonic, there's a broad acceptance that uh, we need to look at the complex interaction of a mutating pathogen, uh, the vector population, and, and we now realize that it's lice as well as fleas. It, 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 it's, it's, it's a whole host of 
different insects can transmit this disease. Um, and we're now looking at a whole range of different hosts. It's not rats. It's, it's ground burrowing mammals, rodents, mm-hmm. and the size of their population and the interaction between them, humans, levels of human malnutrition. So the general sense is that it's, it's bubonic principally, um, but it's, it's transmissible in, in very different ways to bubonic plague today. Mm-hmm. Um, what briefly was the, uh, how, how you say you made the statement that Europe is overpopulated. Really? Was it? I mean, how, how, how do we, how do we know that? And, and what does overpopulated mean in, in 1340? <laughs> Well, it what it what it means is is that the the, the pathway dependency goes all the way back to Thomas Malthus. Um, uh, essentially, historians have have developed an, a number of of indices of of welfare, and so we do have, fortunately, certainly from England, uh, highly reliable price uh, data, wage data, therefore real wage data. Uh, we have significant data about size of land holdings, for instance. And what you get is, is, is a, the vast majority of the population have less than five acres in 1300, which is, by most calculations, hardly sufficient to live on. There's not enough work to go around. There's therefore considerable poverty. Real wages are at their lowest level in the whole of the last millennium uh, in the 1300s and 1310s. And we can correlate high grain prices and poor weather against distress sales and crime activity um, all of which indicate a calamity-sensitive society. So it, it's a broad and non-specific um, definition, but but we have good indices that indicates that there's significant stress in the economy. So part of this is your your argument is the changes in society that are, that are going to that occur because of the Black Death. So what is English society like in 1347? Uh, can we, there's terms of art that you use that have to be used. Um, but require some brief explanation for people who know nothing about this, like manorial lordship. Let's 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 go through a, like a list of those things. What what is manorial yeah. lordship? Yeah, the um, in the general sense, the traditional view of of medieval society is is that it's feudal, and and therefore the the the, the main. Um, set of social relations are between a lord and a lord's tenants, and predominantly serfs, uh, that there is a personal relationship that bonds them, and the lord provides uh, protection and justice, uh, and in return, the serf is given land, uh, the serf has to give much of his produce to support the lord, uh, the serf's labour belongs to the war- lord, uh, and and the, the, the lord can um, exercise arbitrary judgments over o- over the serfs and direct the serfs and the serf family to do as they wish. That's a sort of uh, a stereotypical view of 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 Europe pre pre Black Death. And um, the reality is, I think, very different. Uh, and again, a, a lot of research has has shown significant variations on this stereotype. And what I've tried to do is just take a step back and say, okay, well, what does that mean for the nature of society? And and it, in fact, it, in England, for example, only forty percent of the population are serfs. The rest, what, either what is a serf? Very specifically, okay. what is a serf? 
So a, a, a serf is a, a person who is bound to a lord, um, both personally and in terms of the, the, the land tenure that they hold. Um, they're a peasant. Uh, they essentially are involved in agriculture, and they have to pay a range of different dues to the lord. Therefore, most of their produce um, finds its way to, 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 to the lord, and they need the lord's permission to undertake a range of basic things, such as to leave the manor such as to marry a son or a daughter, uh, such as to, to have the, the right to, to mill uh, at, at the local grain mill. They have to pay a tax to the Lord, tallage, whenever the Lord demands. So they are constrained uh, in, in, in a significant number of ways in terms of their freedom of time and action. So they are one of the many varieties of what we could call unfree, should call unfree labor. Um, 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 it, Exactly. Unfree labor, villains, serfs, customaries, bond. Ten- the, 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 all these names reflect degrees of, of subjection and subordination under the general banner of serfdom. Now, if, and if, if I bought land from Sir Mark de Bailey um, and it came, it could come with serf. The serfs would go with the land when land is sold. Yes, they would. Yeah. yeah. So if a manor, a unit of feudal administration was sold from one lord to another, then the rights over the servile land, the unfree land and the unfree tenantry would, would, would accrue to the new lord. So I've often, I've told students in the past, it's like buying 40 acres of land that comes with a tractor, but the tractor breeds. Which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, shall, I, shall, I shall use that. And, yeah. and originality is the art of concealing your source. Thank you. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Um, well, I mean, uh, trying to ex- explain always the difference between serfdom and, say, uh, and chattel slavery, you know, it's just it's one of those, those, those things that people um, don't realize. Um, so, in about 40% the, of the, the reality is different. The, the reality is different. It is. Uh, can I just, just, just illustrate that with one quick mm-hmm. example? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that, that's the classic. And, and I came across two serfs of the Abbey of Bury St. Edmunds. And, and you don't get more inflexible, bureaucratic, conservative and monastic than the Abbey of Bury St. Edmunds in England at this time. And these two serfs are buying and selling land. They're buying and selling unfree land. They're buying and selling free land. They are litigating in in the manorial court um, in in basic um, debt Mm -hmm. and and contract um, uh, cases. Uh, They're litigating in other courts. They're running the local market town, and they are leasing the right to run the market, to run a market court, um, to run the fair court from the Abbey of Bury St. Edmunds, and they're paying money for it. So if the Abbey's officials roll up in the market, they are subject to the enforcement of the various mercantile and trading regulations by the Abbey's, hang on a minute, own serfs. And, and that, to me, characterizes and, and exemplifies, in reality, this notion of, of feudal or manorial lordship has been all pervasive and highly restrictive of, of the vast majority of the populace, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit reality because the majority of the population are not serfs, they're free or townsfolk. And as I've just tried to exemplify, the, in, on the ground, the relationship between the serf and the lord 
is much more complex. Serfs have many greater de facto freedoms of time and action than than the the theory and the traditional view would allow. Mm-hmm. And and what's the difference then between a serf and a tenant? Although you just described a, a serf as sort of you know uh, never mind that. But what's a what's a sort of a, a standard received view of a tenant? Okay, a serf is 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 hereditary and the bond is personal between the individual male female and the lord a tenant is somebody who holds land from that lord the land might be free or it might be unfree a serf can be a tenant in fact the assumption is before the black death that the serf is both personally bounded to the lord and will be holding unfree land from the lord so that in terms of unfree tenure before the black death because there's massive shortage of land there is no real distinction between a serf and an unfree tenant it's assumed that the two are synonymous though it's a bit blurred well if this sounds complex to listeners that's because it is <laughs> this is this is this is norman law this is it's about complexity and and just dist- making distinctions um yeah, yes yeah <laughs> so let's um we've already t- touched on it before but sort of what would you be your summary um your brief lecture summary to a bunch of half awake undergraduates of the standard received interpretation of the of the black death and its consequences Okay, when addressing half awake undergraduates, after about five minutes, I can make them wholly asleep. I, I, <laughs> I can I can cure insomnia without any problem whatsoever. So the the brief standard summary uh, is is that on the eve of the Black Death, there is a crisis of, of feudalism, uh, this overpopulated, stressed society uh, and 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 economy, and. It's argued the Black Death comes along and essentially has little impact upon the way in which this crisis of feudalism across Europe is is resolved. Because originally the idea was that the mortality was down at the lower end, 20-25%. The Black Death is accelerating a crisis that's already in motion. The trends, the direction of, of societal and economic change and travel have already been set. In the third quarter of the 14th century, so the key period right after the Black Death, few of the expected signs of such an immense demographic cull are visible. You'd expect prices to collapse. You'd expect wages to go through the roof. You'd expect land holdings to be abandoned and unoccupied. And, and yet historians have said prices almost double uh, for, for, for the, in the third quarter of the 14th century after the Black Death. Wages don't go up by very much. There's very little sign of, of empty land holdings. None of the signs are there. So it's argued that it's it's the last quarter of the 14th century. It's the successive impact of a combination of plagues and broader societal anthropological um, anthropocentric um, reasons are explaining why um, the the economy and society are moving in in, in a particular. Um, direction. And it's only in the last quarter of the 14th century that serfdom dissolves because you know the, the landlords have to bargain away uh, serfdom in, in order to get land uh, tenants, in order to, to get labourers to work for, for them. 
So that, that's the, the general uh, explanation. And it also gives an explanation for something like the Peasants' Revolt in 1381. And, and I guess this is the last thing. In some parts of Europe, the same demographic shock of the Black Death um, results in a reimposition of serfdom. As a consequence, to put crudely, Russia is still an enslaved society in the 19th century. So it, it shifts um, Eastern Europe, let's say, or towards um, a, a greater imposition of serfdom and, and, and that pathway. Whereas in parts of Northwest Europe, uh, serfdom is bargained away. And as a consequence, Northwest Europe takes the first tentative steps towards agrarian capitalism, towards liberal and commercial modernity. Two different route ways to modernity. One, serfdom overthrown the 19th century, state socialism forced industrialization in Eastern Europe. In, in Western Europe, an evolution of institutions, economy and society towards capitalism. What explains the difference? The, the argument, conventional argument, is that after the Black Death, lords try and reimpose a second serfdom because tenants are scarce and because labours are expensive and, and lords want to in, impose a set of social relations that are um, not related to the market. In the East, they, they succeed. In the West, they fail. And it's argued that that's because of an increase in peasant resistance, as exemplified by the Peasants' Revolt. And after 1381, the landlords regard this as a warning to beware and bargain away serfdom. So in all of this, the, the Black Death is, is more of a catalyst and accelerator than, than a pivotal and driving force. So that's the standard received interpretation. What's the Bailey's new revised interpretation? Briefly, because we're going to get a little bit deeper into it. So just the, what are the what are the the, the title the head the head heads of it? Okay, so so my argument is that on the eve of the Black Death, um, manorial lordship and and feudalism was nowhere near strong enough for. Um, it to be reimposed after the Black Death. So along comes the Black Death, and I argue that serfdom is very quickly bargained away in the 1350s and the 1360s. I argue that if you look closely at the third quarter of the 14th century, instead of seeing no change, you see a period of the most extraordinary turbulence, um, volatility, uncertainty, unpredictability, readjustment in all manner of different markets, um, overlaid by a, a succession of external disasters, poor weather, more disease, cattle disease. It, it's just a, a period that is that almost defies belief in what's, what's going on. And the notion that, that 50% of the population has no impact on, on the direction um, in which uh, a, a society goes strikes me as as, as being uh, suspect at, at, at the well, least. I, I would say it now strikes me as kind of mildly insane, uh, <laughs> beyond suspect. I, I just don't see how you could possibly claim that. I, it, it's like saying you know you know you, you know water is yellow. I don't know uh, or something like that or. or yeah. So so to me, one needs to look at the complexity. Of, of, of the period and, and look at the different institutional arrangements that condition responses to, to play to see 
the to see plague as something that interacts with a whole host of other variables in rather complex and different ways rather than as an independent variable that will have a, a, a determined outcome in, in most cases. The, the problem with my argument is that I've got to find another reason for the peasants' revolt. I've got to overcome um, conventional assumptions about the nature of sight on the, at the beginning of the Black Death. I've got to explain why prices double for, for, for 25 years after the Black Death? How, how, how do you get that one? In well, fact, I said, I said to an economist, yeah. I said to an economist, can you explain this one to me? 50% of the population die. So you know, the, the demand for, for, for grain and for essential food collapses. And yet basic food prices double. How do you explain that? And he said, your data's wrong. I said, no, 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 the data's right. He said, no, 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 your data's wrong. <laughs> because it, it defies conventional economic logic, or at least the logic that we, we, we choose to apply. If we choose a different one, it can explain it. Well, that's, that's great. I mean, that we're starting there because this is also fits in with, um, I should probably just run this podcast as part of the, the evidence episode for the sort of year-long series on historically thinking. Um, how do you deal with that? I mean, let's deal with that one first. Why do prices double? And how are you? How are you certain enough as you investigate this that your data isn't wrong? I mean, do you, there must be some moment when you say, "No, nope, I'm all right. This is the the data is okay. It, it's something. It, this is something weird." So, how did you get to that point? Okay, it, it, English historians are, are very fortunate in that there is a an enormous amount of archival uh, survivals, and and at a very local level, and we're talking tens of thousands of, of of documents, and from these we can build reliable price and wage series, and they have been. Build it. They've been built since since Thorold Rogers at the end of the nineteenth century, and they're constantly refined. And we're, we're, so we we are as confident of the data as we can be. Mm-hmm. And there is no doubt we've got prices for different grains. We've got prices for for chickens, pigs, uh, cheeses. You name it, we've rabbits. got prices for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, rabbits, yeah, all manner of of unusual uh, commodities. We've got prices, so we we are sure of, of that. So. How do you explain prices rising at that level? The, the conventional explanation is, is, is monetary factors, that there's a sudden influx of, of bullion, and therefore the coin in circulation increases, and so that you, you get inflation, price inflation, and that, um, and that, that be, the coin per head quadruples. Why would there be an influx of bullion? Is that because we, we haven't even mentioned the war that's going on? Is that because of no. loot that's coming back? I mean, is that is that because of Italian investments, or, or what, what's what's the what's the reason for that? It, uh, two things in the 1350s: a successful war mm-hmm. um, by the English against the French, and secondly, um, exports of textiles and wool mm-hmm. um, in the 1350s and 1360s in, increase, and it's paid for with with, with bullion. Um, so, so that, that's that's one explanation. Um, the other explanation is that landlords are manipulating uh, commodity markets, and and there's no real evidence for for that. In fact, the evidence is the government is trying to get the commodity prices down. So there's there's no problem with the evidence. So how do we explain it? And and it is 
a conundrum, and the only way that I could get my hand around it, head around it, is 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 to say, if if all of these things are happening, then what there must be supply side problems. Mm-hmm. Everybody's looking on the demand side. Mm-hmm. Population falls by fifty percent. The number of mouths, the number of bodies to clothe, falls by fifty percent. Hang on, mm-hmm. let's look at the supply side. Let's look at the dis- disruption to supply. And we also need to realise, and this is a very modern mentality, um, that that we take the price of a commodity, let's say grain, to be indicative of the whole market's um, equilibrium of supply and demand for it. But what happens if only 30% of grain is getting to market? Uh, so the prices that you're seeing doesn't necessarily reflect a deficiency in the supply of grain in in subsistence terms. What it reflects is that the the small commercial market is not being sufficiently supplied. So it might reflect not a shortage of grain per se, but the fact that the peasants, instead of selling it to cities, are sitting sitting at home and consuming it. Mm-hmm. Who wouldn't? After mm-hmm. the Black Death, mm-hmm. so so it's 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 and as what it reflects is 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 supply side adjustments to dramatic demand side changes, and and therefore there's not enough of of, of the commodities getting to market, meeting demand, and I think that helps to explain. Let me ask the, a stupid. The, the, yeah, let me ask a stupid question, which it just occurred to me. So it's probably really stupid. Um, so we, yeah, as you say, we think of a grain. I think of grain. You, you get grain prices at the Chicago Board of Trade, and you've got the grain price for the United States. Um, you can monitor the in, in, through remarkable technical advances, really going back to like the telegraph, you can monitor grain prices everywhere at the speed of light. What's a grain market in 1358 England? I mean, it, how far does the market go? I mean, there must be, aren't there a wide variety of grain prices across just England, let alone Wales and and, and, and the rest of Europe? I mean, there, I would, I would assume that the, the, the prices in East Anglia are different than they are in London or in, you know, Wessex or in, you know, uh, uh, Yorkshire and so on. Yeah, there are regional variations in grain prices, which reflects localized, more localized markets. There's not a national grain market in England till probably the 17th, early 18th century. But there, but there, there are regional grain markets, and about 30% of all grain is probably sold in 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 the 14th century. Um, and so when you get the, the, the Chicago grain price, um, that, that's, that's the price for the whole of the United States. And if you want grain, you've got to pay it mm-hmm. because the vast majority of the population are not growing it themselves. In, in, in medieval England, 80 to 90 percent of the population are growing it. They don't have to go to market to get it. So it's, it's townsfolk. It's it's artisans who are looking to top up with with, with from their own small holding. It's mm-hmm. it's it, that's the nature of, of of the market. So it's 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 a segment of the population and it's regionalized as well. But but even given those um, caveats, the general trend of grain prices is the same in all regional grain markets in England after the Black Death. It, they may be going up. up, up but by double or, or maybe 80%, but they're certainly going up. 
Mm-hmm. Let's go to another thing that you said, another problem that you had to explain, which I, lo- I love this way, way of, of putting it. You, you identified all the holes in your in your argument that you then have to, or the, the problem. So let's go to the next one, which would be the um, the bargaining away of serfdom in, in the fi- 1350s and 1360s. Now, first of all, what's your evidence that 1350s and 60s that that happened rather than the standard received interpretation is that it's the 1380s and 90s, right? After the, after the so-called, I'm going to call it the so-called peasants' revolt because I have my doubts about, you know. But anyway, go on. No, I, 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 well, I think we're running on parallel lines. Um, the, the argument is in the 1350s and 1360s, landlords clamps down on mobility. They force serfs to hold land even if they don't want to at high rent levels. The, these, these are the sort of classic... Um, compulsion, uh, dysfunctional theory, Marxist-style ar- arguments, and and th- there is something in it, with, with, without question. Um, I, what I tried to do was measure how many times does a given lord try and stop a serf moving, and and how has that changed over the 14th century? How much are they charging if they do move? How, what's the what's the data for that? What's the evidence for that? How can you tell whether uh, these these are all legal records? They are manorial court rolls, of of which there are tens of thousands, hardly looked at um, in in England. How did you go through? I mean, you've been doing this for thirty years, I guess. Um, uh, how did you I've go been through doing all this for thirty years? Yeah, well, I think it's. It, 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 well, it explains why my hair is grey and my yeah. eyes have regressed deep inside their sockets. I mean, thirty years. Uh, you can you can imagine what an exciting fellow I am oh, reading manorial court rolls, yeah. um, and then and carefully uh, and long before even you had a computer to do this on, carefully recording it in some sort of you know like on your graph paper or whatever you know your in your in your yeah. books, yeah. So, so basically, years and years of careful research, but you make an important point. The advent of, of the use of computers in historical research has allowed us to quantify much more easily and more, more effectively. So I, I actually just counted them up. Are, are, are the number of incidences, the amount that they're being paid, is it increasing or it's decreasing? And I found that after a little bit of repression, inevitable, uh, in, in the early 1350s, it stops. It, it largely stops. And I looked at tenures, and instead of um, peasants and serfs being forced to hold the old villain land on the old terms, lords are converting the old servile customary land into cash contractual tenures. They're called leases, exactly as we would live short-term leases, medium-term leases. There's a shift to contractual tenures in England. And what this reflects is a sudden competition between lords. Mm-hmm. They're, they're trying to attract people. They don't want these old tenures that are stigmatized with tallage and with the need to pay a marriage license. Okay, they want cash rent and they want access and egress. I'll take it to three years. Bit uncertain at the moment. I don't want it for life and then have mm-hmm. to give it on to, to, to my, my heirs. I'll take it for three years. I'll take it for four pence an acre. We'll see how it goes. We'll, we'll renegotiate. And, and this and, is and this is like an instantaneous change. Uh, I mean, compared to the, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's really impressive how fast that happens compared to the standard received interpretation. Um, and you can a completely different I mean, I'm thinking of a completely different mentality of, of, of both Lord and also of the of these former serfs. So, so, so I tried to measure it. 
yeah. what proportion of the unfree land on a given manor as, as changes to contractual tenures, 1350s, 13, 1370s. I've, I found a number of manors where all the land remains abandoned until 1359. They just can't get rid of it. Then, because the Lord is trying to reimpose the old tenures, he can't find anybody. He can't force them to do it. They won't take it. It lies abandoned. So what does he do? Converts it all to leasehold. Within 10 years, the whole lot are tenanted. And what this does, the point you made earlier about what's the difference between a serf and a tenant, before the Black Death, the difference between a serf and an unfree tenant was probably minimal. After the Black Death, you get a significant divergence in England of tenure and status. And, and these leaseholds of unfree land are attracting free folk, free men and women into the servile, what was the servile land market. They'll hold it now if it's for cash. Um, it's, it's a good way of getting on, on the property ladder, a rung on the property ladder. So it, it, what it means is that people holding unfree land are not necessarily serfs anymore. They could be free. They could be townsfolk because the terms of the tenure has been changed and the, the, the demeaning and stigmatizing elements of the old feudal unfree tenures has gone. Now, historians have known that happened, but they said it's mainly in the 15th century. Mm. What I tried to do is to measure and show it's happening rapidly in the 1350s and the 1360s. Historians noted it, but, but they, they didn't listen. They, they didn't understand, as we said earlier, that they, they were looking for, for repression, not for concession. And so by measuring the amount of concession, able to argue that serfdom was falling apart. It was weak before the Black Death, and it's falling apart long before the Peasants' Revolt. And, and by falling apart, do we, are you able to fix a number to it? I mean, where is, where is serfdom by the Peasants' Revolt, and then where is it by 1400? Okay, um, the estimates are that 40% of the population are serfs in, th in, in, in the 1340s and that something like 20% of the population are serfs in 1400. I disagree. I, I think it, it's down to, say, 20%, maybe 15% at the Peasants' Revolt, and I'd put it as low as 10% at 1400. It, it, it's, it's rapidly disappearing. And of course, it has implications for the Peasants' Revolt, because if only 15% of the population are, are peasants, how can it be about serfdom? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What, um, uh, by the way, it is another odd question that just strikes me. We should be able to know the last serf in England, which would be a good title for a novel. Um, but wh who, 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 when was the last serf in England? Oh, um, it, it, late 16th century. Really? That's um, late as that? It withers. It, it's never formally abolished. Serfdom is never formally abolished. It withers on the vine. And um, and the cases in the 15th and early 16th century are prominent um, because lords, unscrupulous lords, are trying to extort them mm -hmm. for the, some of the old feudal uh, levies. Um, and uh, so you can buy freedom of, by manumission, mm -hmm. but you've got to buy it from your lord. Otherwise, if you don't, it withers on the vine, and the last serfs are about the, the, the 1580s. There are a handful by then. Well, let's go to um, what I think I'm going to call now the Revolt of 1381. So it was a revolt. Um, it wasn't just a, a – contemporaries called it a rumor, as I recall, um, the Great Rumor. But it was a little bit more than a rumor um, by the time it was all done. And it's um, – you know, I, I've been reading this uh, this new project um, – uh, on the, the 1381 Re Revolt Project, which is a which is a fascinating big data project, and I hope to have 
uh, the uh, some of them those those people that do that on on the podcast. Um, the um, thirteen eighty one revolt. Um, how do you explain that then? Um, and why why could you explain a little bit again why the thirteen eighty one revolt sort of acts against your thesis, and then how you would actually respond to that? Okay. The, the received wisdom from late 19th century historians and developed and made much more sophisticated by Marxist historians in, in the 20th century is that if you have a seniorial reaction and attempts to impose a new serfdom because of the shortages of tenants and workers after the Black Death, that, that would serve the Lord's interests. If there's this reaction... It, it generates a sort of counter movement of resistance, and and you, you can see mounting um, outbursts of of discontent and 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 anger at, at seigneurial impositions. And at the same time, that the government is trying to impose restrictions in the labour market to support the landlords, it's called the statutes of, of, of labourers. And, and these historians, and there's a lot to be said for it, argue that you get an alliance between the state and manorial lordship acting together to, to prevent the peasantry from gaining uh, the economic gains through wages and 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 declining rents uh, that the economic reality dictates and and this ultimately is is the thing that creates the tinderbox that is ignited by the poll tax of of, of the late fourteen uh, late 1370s when when the crown tries to introduce a, a novel and onerous taxation, not once but thrice, uh, and the attempts to collect, collect the third one in 1381 causes this underlying foment of, of grievance to just explode in anger in 1381. Um, and that, that's the conventional explanation, and I, I think there is something in it. Um, my view, however, would be that if this senior reaction was, was, was weak, and highly confined and, and actually serfdoms in retreat, wh wh where's the source of, of, of resistance? How's that building up to 1381? Um, and, and so in, instead, the, there is a, a growing uh, line of argument that, that, that the revolt in 1381 is largely political. It, it's about the um, shifting fiscal arrangements after the Black Death. You've got a half the population are dead, and yet the, the crown is waging war as if nothing has happened, and it's expensive, and it's a losing war by the 1370s against the French. They're short of cash. And the tax burden increases threefold in the 1370s on individuals compared to what it was in the 1340s. So now that is something that would unite disparate groups of people in common cause and common grievance. So there's no doubt that I think that's one factor. The the other is that there's there's anger at the political management um, of of the war and of government finances in the late 1370s, which is tied up with London factional policies, um, the, the way that the Crown is paying off its loans to, to Italian merchants. Um, that there's, there's a lot of intrigue around the court. So there's, there's concern that the government is not only 
charging high number members high amounts of tax, um, but they're corrupt as well. They're, they're being wasteful and they're waging a war badly, and mm. and and therefore there's mis, misuse of government finances. All of that's fairly well established. What I tried to do in to get another line of argument to see what else might be um, creating common cause of grievance amongst. Yes, some serfs, but they're only 15% of the population. Townsfolk, free people from the countryside, artisans. What unites them? They've got a lot that isn't in common. And according to the data sets that the 1381 Project has come up with, uh, 20% of those involved in the revolt are actually men-at-arms. I mean, gentlemen with horses and coat armor. Um, that's, uh, That's not the Peasants' Revolt that I was taught. And, and some of them would have been unpaid soldiers. Uh, some some of them would um, have been fighting in in, in the wars, um, unpaid, unemployed, uh, angry with 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 government policy. Um, so the the those involved in the rising are a very disparate group. And the more that we look at the targets, the rebels are not targeting lords who had oppressed them for 20 years. The rebels are actually going away from their own manor and they're attacking properties belonging to John of Gaunt, who's at the centre of the government, and other figures at the centre of government. They're attacking poll tax commissioners. They're attacking justices of the peace. And these are the people who've been imposing the labour legislation. Now, the labour legislation um, applies to the free and to townsfolk, as well as the unfree. Um, It isn't very successful, so it's difficult to know how that causes a significant sense of injustice. And what I tried to do was to say, well, hang on a minute, there's been a, a major increase in both royal taxation and the intrusion of the mechanics of royal justice into the countryside, into towns, into ordinary society in the 1350s and the 1360s in an attempt to control the labour market, uh, the commodity market. Who's implementing it? How does it get implemented? And it's not top-down. It's actually by local villagers deciding who to prosecute, where to prosecute them, when to prosecute them. Because if somebody breaks the labour law, you can wave a finger at them you can put them in the stocks, you can find them in your local court, or you can take them all the way up to the king's bench. Same offence, completely different punishment and judicial outcome. And one of the things I'm trying to look at is the way, what's the experience of justice on the ground? And, and I would argue that it becomes more indiscriminate, um, it becomes... Um, more, sorry, it, it, it's wielded by royal officials who are have considerable discretion to decide who gets punished and how they get punished. And I think that they are they're untrained, no professional development for royal officials. They're unpaid. They're, they're in each village. That they're appointed often by election, and I think they've got an impossible job. Who do you pick? Yeah, everybody's breaking the legislation. Why are you picking them? And why are you punishing them mildly, waving a finger, or sending others up to the king's bench? And I think if one tries to see the experience of justice from below, I argue that there is significant discretion given to ordinary people, and some of them abuse it, 
Some of them misuse it. Some of them think, how on earth am I supposed to make this work? The JPs are giving me, are putting pressure on me to bring more cases and it's unfair. How can I pick? And, and I, I think that there's something quite interesting in, in, in how the experience of raw justice on the ground results in frustration and corruption, um, mismanagement, incompetence. Uh, and and if there's just this mounting anger at the way that the royal justice, uh, the political situation, the fiscal situation had all been mismanaged and it explodes with the trigger of, of, of the poll tax. And, and that explains why the insurgents are from such a wide background and why they are targeting political and judicial figures far more often than oppressive landlords. Let's move into the sort of, let's start moving out of the, the conversation, down the downslope of the conversation. Um, I want to get back to that. Uh, what you've already mentioned is the fraught and fascinating subject of the divergence between really Northwest Europe and Western Europe, between East, Western Europe and Eastern Europe, but also between Northwest Europe and the rest of, and, and, and the rest of Europe. Um, what ultimately is your explanation for how, um, as you said, how um, England and Holland um, but let's leave them out for the moment, uh, start to enter into this, <laughs> this era of agrarian capitalism and an increasingly di- divergence from the rest of Europe in terms of um, the laws and ultimately their political institutions. Yeah, the, 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 there's a, an intense interest now in, in the era of the Black Death, taken as being the middle of the 14th century all the way through to the middle of the 17th century, the same demographic experience across Europe results in very divergent socio-political economic outcomes. Um, and 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 how, how do we explain this? It is, it's, it's, it's the big, big question in in. In, in, in history, um, it, it, it can be, um, I, I think, exemplified by the case of England, uh, which has an economy the same size as Mamluk Egypt in 1300. In 1400, the English economy has contracted by about 20-25%, but GDP per head has increased by about 30%. The Egyptian economy has contracted by about 80% and GDP per head is calculated at about the same level. So exactly the same demographic experience, highly divergent outcomes, and and to a lesser degree, the experience of of Egypt is, 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 is... characterized by Spain as well, which its GDP falls after the Black Death, England's increases. And how do we explain this? Well, essentially, I think the the, the sort of vanguard states, the vanguard regions are those where there is stronger central state um, particularly in the the provision of of justice, where where feudal power, manorial power is, is, is weak where there's a developed legal system, and I think this is this is very important in the English in the English case, um, because the the importance of a legal system, um, a relatively independent legal system that is regulating factor markets, means that um, market forces will prevail after the Black Death, so that you will get a redistribution of income down the social scale. It weakens seniorial ability to impose um, uh, and 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 so 
after the Black Death, you get an increased commoditization of factor markets. So you get aggregate contraction, but there's a redistributive, a positive redistributive element to, to, to wealth in the vanguards. The rear guards, places like Egypt and the East, I think are characterized by weak state power or diminishing state power, strong local seigneurial power capable of imposing local um, power um, and social relations that, that suit them against market forces, a weak legal system because justice is provided uh, arbitrarily um, and at the personal discretion of, of a lord, and still relatively weak um, or even declining commoditization of, of factor markets. And those, those are the, those, the, the sort of key characteristics. And the, and the way in which, if you like, demographic decline filters through depends a lot on the institutional structure. Uh, to me, it depends upon the existence of a legal system yeah. because a, a legal system where you've got um, dispute resolution and factor allocations, land, labor, commodity allocations based um, on, 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 on written proofs, on evidence, on set procedures for determining disputes, um, where th th that will encourage the development of markets and the increased influence of market forces and and, and the, the, the sort of evolutionary divergence towards industrial capitalism are those regions um, where there, there is a, a redistribution of wealth down the social scale and where there is increased commoditization of, of markets. The market doesn't operate how it does in the 17th century, it doesn't operate how it operates in the 20th century, but markets are increasingly influential on the allocation of resources. Um, we're going to have to wrap up now, which I could ask you many, many more questions about this. This is fascinating stuff. Um, but uh, let me let me read you to yourself. Um, <laughs> right at the end of the book, um, it's a great preface and a great epilogue, by the way, uh, but you write, pandemics are watersheds in human history but they do not dictate the direction, nature, and pace of change. Now, first of all, the question is, did you write that before or after March 2020? Because I, I'm, I'm curious about that. Was you, were you still tidying things up after the uh, COVID began? I'll be honest, after. Okay, still. This has been on your mind for a while, though. Uh, uh, so could, could you please expand and expound upon that aphorism? Because it, it seems... Um, at the moment, it seems that it, that has something to say to our condition, uh, based upon your long consideration of the of the fourteenth century. Um, yeah, I, I, I felt a need to, to make a statement about pandemics. Yeah, um, that's as accurate as I could make it. Um, I don't think it's particularly earth shattering. Uh, in some ways, it, it feels just a little dilute and a, a, a little weak. But I think that the context is important. The first thing is, is that the denial of the importance of climate in the 1980s resulted in a massive swing of the pendulum and, and, and studies um, arguing for climatic determinism, mm -hmm. that, that civilizations rose and fall as a consequence of climate change. And, and I, I was very keen not 
to um, push the pendulum that far and, and argue, if you like, for disease determinism, mm-hmm. that, that it's, a, it's, a, it's an independent variable that has demonstrable uh, outcomes. So, so that, that was the first thing. The second thing, because I've constantly been asked, oh, what's the, what do we learn from pandemics from the Black Death? It's, it's comparing apples and pears. 50% mortality rate compared to what we have at the moment and and a, a developed economy with a lesser developed economy mm-hmm. with very different wealth distribution even if you take the current pandemic the 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 the, the selectivity of mortality is is very different in in lesser developed countries than it is in in highly developed countries looks happening in, in india at the moment so even one pandemic can have very different demographic or mortality selectivity, um, and it, it 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 can be very different within different um, institutional settings. So I was keen to not emphasize a certain dem- disease determinism in saying that. I think the the the, the second uh, reason uh, for for saying it is is this the the one question that has that has um, stimulated me all along is exactly the same demographic experience in terms of aggregate mortality, very different socioeconomic outcomes. Um, so you can't. That is why historians for years have said it can't be the Black Death, mm-hmm. because if that's the case, every outcome would be the same. And instead, there is a, a move towards ex- con- looking at complexity. At interdependence, the interdependence of of disease, institutional response, what structure of society, wealth distribution within society, legal structures. Um, I, I think I, I didn't expect to think that that legal structures and the importance of a relatively independent legal culture and judiciary that that determines allocation of, 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 of markets, of, of, of factors, and, and also reducing risk in response. How do you respond to a pandemic? It, there's, there's risk in responses. Mm-hmm. A good legal system helps to reduce transaction costs and, and risks. If you don't have that legal system, you're exposed to the arbitrary will and force, um, a force of arms of seniorial bands or, or whatever it might be so the institutional structure is is clearly important as well and and it's and my experience also of that third quarter of the 14th century which i think is just the quarter of the century in the last two millennia for significant change I and mean, what a time to, to to explore as a historian um, the impact of of the greatest p- p- pandemic uh, and and it's highly complex. It's highly turbulent, and we tend to look at it with hindsight. Let's get inside what 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 happened and try and explore that complexity and look at these um, these interactions between disease, people, opportunities, uh, responses, risk, and and so on. Uh, and and we 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 need almost to describe them. I think. Description as a role in history is, is underrated. We're all in a, such a rush to analyse. Let's describe what happened. Let's understand what's happened, and then we might be able to analyse it more more accurately. But I, I guess um, the desire is not to be deterministic 
about about the impact of pandemics. Well, my guest today has been Professor Mark Bailey of East University of East Anglia, and his book is After the Black Death, Economy, Society, and the Law in 14th Century England. Mark Bailey, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. I want to take a moment to introduce Historically Thinking listeners to another podcast, one I've thoroughly enjoyed since it first appeared. It's The Age of Jackson, hosted by Daniel N. Galata, whom listeners will recognize from an interview I did with him earlier this spring. Each week, Daniel talks with authors of the latest books that focus on American politics, culture, religion, and just about everything else in the first 50 years of the 19th century. Lately, Daniel has featured conversations on the two Shawnee brothers who shaped American history, fear of Mormons and Jacksonian politics, and sexual tumult in 19th century America. Always engaging and interesting, The Age of Jackson is, I think, one of the best history podcasts out there. If you enjoy historically thinking, but think that sometimes I'm not doing enough podcasts on American history, particularly 19th century American history, and you know who you are, then check out The Age of Jackson, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.